If you have your Bible this morning and want to open to Romans chapter 12, we're going to look there today. It was one of those attention-grabbing headlines. Made me stop and read the article. Now the headline said this, Plane with a mind of its own crashes. And the story that followed was not only very funny, but it illustrated a great truth. Now here's the story. Paul Sirks owned a vintage single-engine plane. And he had landed the plane at Grimes Airfield in Urbana, Ohio, because of mechanical problems. The plane's engine had stalled on the runway, and Sirks got out to restart it by hand-turning the propeller. Now here's where the fun began. Once the engine started... He could only watch helplessly as the plane, on its own, taxied away from him and took off by itself. See, the plane was trimmed for landing, which meant the nose was trimmed up, so the plane just began to climb. And for two hours, the plane flew itself. It climbed to about 2,000 feet, circled the area for five minutes, and then began heading northeast. Another pilot and the state highway patrol tracked the plane, which reached about 12,000 feet near the end of its flight. It finally crashed 90 miles away from where it took off. It was completely destroyed. Now, the obvious truth of the story is, without a pilot, a plane is, will inevitably crash. But there's a greater truth for all of us. You see, our lives are like that plane. And without God piloting our life and us just flying according to His will, the plane of our life will eventually crash. The Apostle Paul said this in Ephesians 5.17, Do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. The wisest thing we will ever do with our life is to find out what the will of God is and do it. It's one of the, the greatest Lessons parents can ever teach their children. You know, I don't guess any pastor has ever been asked a question more than this. How do I know the will of God for my life? And unfortunately, many people think that finding God's will is like playing a game of hide and seek. Like trying to hunt for small Easter eggs in tall grass. But, but let me encourage you with this. You, you don't find God's will. God's will will find you. You know that God is more anxious for us to know His will than we are to find it? It's not really our responsibility to find the will of God. It's our responsibility to do the will of God. And if God wants you to know His will, it is His responsibility to reveal it. But it's your responsibility to obey it. And in Romans chapter 12, we have God's method on here's how to know His will for our lives. And we're going to, to learn that. And learn that before we can know the will of God that we don't know, we must do the will of God that we do know. See, there are three steps that we have to take to get in a position where God can reveal His will to us, knowing that we will do what He wants us to do. And it begins where a personal presentation must be given. As any parent knows, when you're watching your kids walk, before they take their second step, they have to take their first step. And the first step to knowing the will of God is surrender. Romans 12, chapter 1 says this, 
Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. So you cannot say to God, tell me what you want me to do, and then I'll decide if I want to do it. <laughs> no, God writes his will on a blank contract that you've already signed with no fine print at the bottom. See, before God's will is revealed to you, you have to surrender your life to him. You must literally make a present, a gift of your life to God. That presentation always comes before the revelation. Now, what is the motivation for that presentation? I mean, why should we surrender our lives? Why should we sacrifice our bodies to God? Well, the reason is found in these four words. The mercies of God. If someone had your life in their very hands, and they were justified in taking your life, but they mercifully spared it, would you not say that you owed them your life? Absolutely. I mean, that's what Paul uses the word therefore. You see, for eight chapters, Paul has been talking about the mercies of God. In the first three chapters, here he talks about the mercy of salvation. Chapters four and five, he talks about the mercy of justification. Chapter six and seven, he talks about the mercy of sanctification. In chapter eight, he talks about the mercy of glorification. Now, to put it simply, God saves us because of his mercy. Even though we are guilty, he justifies us because of his mercy. And after saving us, after justifying us, he cleanses us and he makes us useful because of his mercy. And then he has promised one day to glorify us for all of eternity because of his mercy. And all of these marvelous mercies have been made possible by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so Paul points to this. Because Jesus died for us, we ought to live for him. Because we are saved through his sacrifice for us, we ought to live in sacrifice to him. That's why Paul says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now normally a sacrifice is something that is killed. And yet here we find God demands not only the sacrifice, but also the sacrificer. You see, in the Old Testament, God wanted the sheep. But in the New Testament, God wants the shepherd. And the reason that he wants your body is this. If anything has your body, it has you. <laughs> so we are to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. But again, that, that phrase, living sacrifices, is strange. It's an oxymoron. Because if you sacrifice something, it's, it's dead. If it's not dead, you haven't sacrificed it. But we are told to give a living sacrifice. So to understand that, just simply substitute the words sacrificial living. We are to give our lives to God in sacrificial living. See, when you sacrifice something, you give up all possession, all ownership of it. In the Old Testament, there was no such thing as partial sacrifice. You didn't sacrifice a part of the lamb. You gave the whole lamb. It was always a total sacrifice. It was always no strings attached. There's a story of a chicken, and he came up to a pig, and he said, hey, I got an idea. Let's start a restaurant. And the pig said, well, that sounds great. What do you think we should serve? 
And the chicken said, well, how about we serve ham and eggs? <laughs> and the pig said, well, that's easy for you. You make a token commitment. But you're asking for a total sacrifice for me. You see, that's exactly what the Lord demands of us. Total sacrifice. Complete surrender of our life. Of everything we are, of everything we do, of everything we say, of everywhere we go. Of our entire life to Him. I was in a store once and they were having this going out of business sale. And you walked through the building and there was this huge signs all over and it said, no refund, no returns, all transactions final. And you know, that's exactly the kind of sacrifice we have to offer to God. A living sacrifice, total and complete of everything we are, everything we have, no refunds, no returns, final. Paul goes on to call this sacrifice a reasonable service. Now the Greek word for service is the word that means worship. See, when you offer to God the sacrifice of your body, when you give God all that you have and all that you are, that is real worship. As a matter of fact, the first thing you ought to do every day is sacrifice yourself as an act of worship to the Lord. There was an old British bishop and he would wake up every morning and he would look up to heaven and say, Lord, this bed is my altar. This body is my sacrifice. As I arrive to face the day until the moment I return, I offer my life as a sacrifice to you. See, that's how we need to start out every day. And one of the, the things that's wrong with church today is people feel like they have to wait until Sunday to come to church before they can worship. But understand this, if you have not worshipped before you come to church, you're not ready to worship when you come to church. See, the word here can be translated service. Another mistake we, we, we make in differentiating between worship and service I mean, we think worship is something we do Sunday mornings. And service is something we do during the week. But God put those two together. We serve the Lord as we worship Him on Sunday. And we worship the Lord as we serve Him on Monday. See, here's what God expects us to do with our worship. He wants us to escort the worship to church. Enjoy worship while we're here at church. And expand that worship from church. And express it. Outside of the church. So you can worship God tomorrow by being honest at work. By working hard for your employers. You can worship God in school by doing your best and being obedient to your teacher. By respecting your elders and sharing Jesus with your classmates. Worship is something we do every moment of every day. That's why Paul calls this service reasonable. See, the Greek word is the word that gives us the English word Logical. You know why it's logical to worship God? Why it's logical to serve God? If God is who He says He is, if He has done for us what He says He has done for us, it just makes sense to worship. I mean, there are some people who think they have done God a big favor if they just believe in Him. <laughs> but let me, think, let me have you think about something. It's illogical. It's unreasonable to simply believe in God and do nothing else. If you really believe in God, you will worship God. You will love God. You will serve God. You will trust God. You will obey God. 
Second, a powerful transformation should be granted. Let's continue. Verse 2, chapter 12. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. See, there are two words that jump out at me. Conform and transform. See, right now, one of two things is happening to you. You're either being conformed or you're being transformed. Every person on this planet is either a conformer or a transformer. And for every positive, there's a negative. And first we see the negative, and then we have the positive. See, the first word, conform, comes from the root that gives us the word scheme. What Paul is saying is, don't let the world force you or fool you into living according to its schemes. The Living Bible says this, don't copy the behavior and the customs of this world. You know what a chameleon is, right? It's an animal that can change its color with its surroundings. It'll take on the color of whatever is around it. In other words, it conforms. This, this has the connotation of giving an outward expression that really does not reflect our inward condition. See, the point is, don't let the world make you look on the outside differently than what you are on the inside. You know, if I can be honest, I believe one of the hindrances to, to the unsaved coming to church are spiritual chameleons. Are those people that they come to church and while they're at church, they take on the color of sanctity and holiness and righteousness and they sing the songs and they bow their heads and pray and they put offering in the plate and, and they greet everyone out the door. But when they leave the church, they take on the colors of this carnal world. And they let the world squeeze them into its mold. See, for all of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, God is looking for us to live on Monday what we say we believe on Sunday. We cannot be conformed. We must be transformed. The Greek word for transform is translated metamorphosis. It's a change on the outside that comes from the inside. For example, a butterfly is the result of metamorphosis. Right? It's hard to believe these slimy, grimy caterpillars that greasily crawl its way around on the ground can form a cocoon around its body and before long grow wings and legs and a body sprouts and, and out of that cocoon comes a beautiful butterfly. It was changed on the outside because of a change on the inside. One author said this, God formed man, sin deformed man, our schools inform man, but the Lord Jesus transforms man. I mean, the greatest news we have is Jesus can transform anyone. When he comes into your life, this transformation takes place. And when Jesus comes into your life, the world should see on the outside a reflection of Jesus that is on the inside. See, here's the difference between conforming and transforming. If the world looks at me and sees a mirror, that is its own reflection, that is conforming. 
But if the world looks at me and they see a window, and in that window they see Jesus, that is transforming. And that is to take place in your mind. And he said, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why the mind? Well, because the mind is the source of thought, and the thought is the source of deed. Proverbs 23.7 says, For as he thinks in his heart, so is he. It's not at all a coincidence that Paul mentions the body in verse 1 and the minds in verse 2. Right? In verse 1 he says we are to sacrifice our bodies. In verse 2 he says we are to sanctify our minds. Doctors now know that our bodies inevitably become what our minds harbor. In fact, the condition between our state of mind and the physical condition of our body is so strong. It's estimated that 70% of Americans go to doctors for treatment when there's nothing wrong. Reports indicate 52% of American men and women are seeing psychologists or psychiatrists and are going to great expense at a vast assortment of mental health clinics when it's essentially their thinking that is all wrong. One football coach made this statement. Whoever controls the line of scrimmage will win the game. Well, in the Christian life, the line of scrimmage is our mind. That is where the enemy seeks to control us because if he can influence our minds, he controls our behavior. That's why we have to saturate our mind with the Word of God because it is the Word of God that fills our mind with the wisdom of God. And then it's the wisdom of God that gives us the ability to discern and define and do the will of God. But God does not reveal His will to conformers, only to transformers. And then we have to have a purposeful revelation that will be gained. See, after the presentation and the transformation comes revelation. All of this in order that you may test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now please listen carefully. It is the will of God to reveal His will to anyone who's willing to do His will. But I want to show you what it is about the will of God that should make you want it to begin with. See, God's will is profitable. We read here that God's will is good. And if that is true, you should never be afraid of the will of God. You always know this. Not only is it good, but God's will is better for you than anything that might lie outside of the will of God. It's a privilege. It's not something you have to do. It's something we get to do. But God's will is also pleasing. In other words, God's will will not only be good for you, it will be acceptable to you. In fact, if you are right with God, the only place you can be happy is when you are in the will of God. David Livingston, one of the greatest missionaries, gave his life to the mission field, for the mission field, and on the mission field. Towards the end of his life, he said, I would rather be in the heart of Africa, in the will of God, than on the throne of England, outside the will of God. But God's will is also perfect. And the last time I checked, you can't beat perfection. See, this is the real crux of the issue with the will of God. 
Your heavenly Father loves you so much. He doesn't want what is good for you. He doesn't even want what is better for you. He wants what is best for you. He wants what is perfect. And what is perfect is His plan for your life. I read recently about a a young ensign who made his first chip on a destroyer across the ocean. He had state-of-the-art training. He had brilliant credentials. And it was his assignment to take this destroyer out of the harbor and bring it back to the United States. It was his first task as a young officer, and he wanted to do it perfectly. He was extremely bright, forceful, a strong leader, and in a moment, that that deck was buzzing with action. He was barking commands here and there like a veteran, and everything was moving with the harmony of a Swiss clock. The destroyer made its way out of the harbor flawlessly, even though it was very meticulous and a treacherous maneuver. Well, they were on their way in record time and someone came to this young man and said, you have a message from the captain. Well, he thought it was strange because it was a radio message, but he read it and this is what the captain said. Young man, you've done an excellent job. You've done it with great speed and with dispatch according to the book. But there's one unwritten rule you have overlooked. The next time you leave the harbor, make sure the captain is on board. See, what this young man did was he left the harbor, but he left the captain back on shore. See, no matter how wise you are, how educated you are, how capable you are, how brilliant you are, how talented you are, before you leave the harbor, you'd better make sure the captain's on board. You'd better make sure you are in the will of God. Don't leave home without it. As we close this morning, let me ask you, have you offered yourself as a living sacrifice to God? Have you given Him your life? Have you been transformed? Or do you need to today? If that's what you need, I invite you, stop by the church, talk to me, call me, text me, but let's make this week the week you are transformed for Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father God, we are grateful that it's not on us. We know that when we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice to you, when our life is transformed by you, that we will then begin to see your perfect will for our life. Help us, Lord, each day to seek to become more like you in every way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.